Hello, and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, doing as good as you can during the apocalypse. <laughs> That's the answer I get from you every week. <laughs> Until the apocalypse it's, ends, it's, it'll be the answer. It's been a long apocalypse. Um, also joining us on today's podcast is Nabila Islam. Nabila, how are you? I'm uh, I'm doing a little better than Luke, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, on today's podcast, we are going to share with you some really disturbing news that has emerged out of a whistleblower report that alleges uh, terrible treatment of immigrants who are detained at the Irwin County uh, Detention Center, a privately run immigration detention facility near Osceola. Um, these allegations made a lot of headlines across uh, Georgia politics today. And so we're going to talk about what's been alleged about the treatment of people at that facility. Then for our second topic this week, we're going to add a little note on to uh, the end of our discussion recognizing Labor Day last week. Um, we didn't have this news when we recorded, but shortly after we recorded Staffers working on Democratic campaigns in Georgia announced that they were forming a union um, and joining the Teamsters Union and that they were in the process of negotiating a union contract with the state Democratic Party. Um, so we're going to talk about their effort at unionizing and about how difficult the, the job of being a campaign staffer can be and the kinds of things that... Uh, that those workers may be looking for in a union negotiation. And then finally this week, we're going to share an interview with you that I did with Erica Williams. She is a district attorney candidate down in Houston County. And this interview I thought was really interesting because as we've talked to DA candidates on this show, we've really focused on DA candidates that are running on a criminal justice reform agenda and this is a, you know, there's, there's trends around this type of agenda nationwide. And we have a few candidates uh, like Deborah Gonzalez over in the Athens area who is running on a similar agenda. Erica Williams, I thought was really interesting because while she and I discussed some of these reform ideas, uh, we also talked about some of the nuts and bolts of running the DA's office and how she would approach that job differently than her predecessor who is her boss. She's running against her boss for this seat. Um, so it makes for kind of an interesting dynamic at the office and, and an interesting conversation that we are excited to share with you. So let's start here with this first topic. And on Monday, a whistleblower report filed by a nurse at an immigration detention facility near Osceola was made public. This report detailed how management of the facility did not take seriously the threat of COVID-19, refusing to test detainees in their care and putting staff at risk of infection. The full report filed by um, some affiliated advocacy groups also alleges that hysterectomies were done on multiple women at the facility and that these women were not clearly informed about why these procedures were needed. These allegations are, are some of the most serious that I've seen uh, related to the treatment of immigrants who are being held in detention facilities. Um, this facility is, is near Osceola. It's a privately run facility. Um, but there are other facilities like this in other states. The the allegations here, to me, call to mind, though, some of the absolute worst stories related to immigration during the Trump administration, primarily the crisis of family separations that happened on the border a couple of years ago. So to dive in a little deeper here on what's been alleged, uh, the the nurse who was a whistleblower in this case, she is alleging that the facility underreported cases of COVID-19 at this detention center, I mean, that they refused to test people who were being detained, despite the fact that they had ordered and had in their possession testing machines that would return results in eight in just eight minutes. Um, they also knowingly put their staff at risk of contracting the virus from people who had it by uh, hoarding away PPE like masks and refusing to give any kind of PPE to, to people who were being detained. Um, they also ignored medical complaints that were made by people who were being detained. And, and she describes instances of falsified temperature readings and 
um, threats to put people who were complaining about symptoms to just put them in solitary confinement instead of giving them treatment. Um, the complaint also makes really serious allegations that immigrant women who were being detained in these facilities were um, taken to a doctor who performed a high rate of hysterectomies on, on multiple women. And uh, she describes in the complaint how these women did not know in all of these cases, the reason why they were given a hysterectomy. It, the way it's described, it seems very sketchy and, and doesn't, to me, sound like proper medical procedure as she describes it. Nabila, you were at a press conference today where this whistleblower spoke out, spoke to the media, and I believe there was a, a demonstration as well. Can you give us your reaction to these allegations and what, and tell us a little bit about what the environment was like at this event this afternoon? Well, when I first read them yesterday, I was uh, pretty sick to my stomach that this is happening right here in Georgia. And it was very it was incredibly disheartening. Uh, th- these immigrant women, uh, you know, they're at this private detention center because ICE has incarcerated them uh, because of their undocumented status. And so they don't have they don't barely have any rights. And so you can see uh, the, the people that work at this detention center take advantage of that and uh, forcing these hysterectomies on these women. As, as you mentioned, a lot of them didn't understand why it was happening. Uh, and was at the um, press conference today, uh, you know, several legal advocacy groups uh, filed the uh, whistleblower complaint from Nurse Don Mouton. Uh, when I was there, I had the opportunity to see uh, the nurse herself speak about uh, the atrocities that she herself saw and you know she came from it from the perspective of i'm a nurse and this is my profession and i'm obligated to help people but i'm also a mother i have children and these are women that are separated from their families they are you know they're getting tested for covid even though we they had the test at the facility and then you know uh, folks at the facility didn't have ppe um it was there was unsanitary conditions and then you have on top of that these hysterectomies um these women are being abused and you know she referred to um that i saw the the nurse don Wooten referred to the performing gyno as the uterus collector because he had performed so many hysterectomies on these immigrant women um and i'm so glad that she had the courage uh, to speak up and give a voice to um, these women who otherwise, I don't know when we would have found out that this was happening. And I'm telling you, this is probably happening across the country, I'm not hearing about it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm really glad I, you know, I, I got to go this uh, morning. It, ha- it was around uh, 12 o'clock. Um, but, you know, there were other organizations there as well, speaking Project South, who's been pretty much leading this and Glar was there as well. Um, and I, I hope that, you know, we've seen across the country, uh, Pelosi was saying that, that Donald Trump needs to, his administration needs to look into this. Um, every, uh, congressional member, pretty much everyone I feel like has, has made a, uh, a statement on how um, terrible this is. And so, um, the, I've personally advocated for abolishing ICE in private detention centers and, uh, private prisons when I was running for office because, Uh, None of these institutions should have a place in a moral society. Luke, I think this was a reminder. You know, it's been a while since the crisis of family separations at the border has been in the news. Um, But I think it's a reminder that there are people who are still living under these conditions, people who are still um, being treated so abhorrently by the Trump administration and in agencies of the federal government. What was your reaction to seeing um, these claims? Uh, I think exactly what you said. It's just another reminder that just because this is not in the news as much as it previously was, and it's not what's at the top of people's minds, doesn't mean it stopped happening. And if anything, I imagine some conditions are being worse around the country, considering the fact that conditions were really, really bad 
when we had quote unquote the greatest economy ever. And now that we are not in that situation and we're in the situation of a global pandemic, I imagine that the stresses and strains on these systems have only gotten worse and that um, there are problems like this around the country, if not this exact problem, then other problems. Because at the end of the day, regardless of if this was just a rogue actor or if this is the policy of ICE under Donald Trump, he and his federal government is ultimately accountable for what happens in every detention center, private or public, because they are the executive. They have a line of authority going to them. And so this is one of those things where upon hearing these allegations, they should be in an uproar. They should be pushing for investigations and you know, trying to figure out what is going on here, but I, I really doubt that they will do that. Yeah, this strikes me as one of those things where regardless of whether this was ever formal policy, the message being sent from the top, from from President Trump all the way back to when he was a candidate, from Stephen Miller, who has you know, been the author of some of the most abhorrent anti-immigrant policies that have been put forth in this administration, that that those stances taken by people at the top of the federal government kind of give a license to people further down to commit atrocities like this um, and feel like they can, can get away with it. Let's talk a little bit about the reaction from Democrats here. Um, I think as expected, Nabila, you mentioned this, that House Speaker Pelosi called for a federal investigation. She called for an investigation by the Trump administration into these complaints and, and what was happening here. Um, you saw reactions from Democrats that that we all know, Democrats serving in the legislature who were calling back to some of the most abhorrent uh, human rights abuses committed by by fascist governments in the past and how this you know, in some ways, particularly as it relates to the hysterectomies is is reminiscent of, of some of those atrocities. The one interesting reaction that I saw was from House Democratic leader Bob Trammell, who, you know, obviously called out how terrible this is, um, but also called for a specific response at the state level, writing to the medical and nursing boards in the state, asking that they immediately suspend the licenses of the providers that were named in the report and do a full investigation within their offices of the, uh, of the alleged activities here. What did y'all think of, of the reaction to this and, and any thoughts in particular on Trammell immediately calling for a reaction on the state level when, when immigration is largely a federal issue? I, I was very happy to see Leader Trammell pushing for action on the state level. You know, that is his role as the state house minority leader, uh, asking the state to do things is what a, you know, the role that a state legislator can be very effective in. And I think we forget the importance of our state government sometimes. And, uh, you know, as he, he pushed for is getting uh, the people involved in this situation's medical license reviewed or, you know, revoked, I think that is a incredibly appropriate response in this situation. And I, I was happy to see him pushing for that because one of the things that frustrates me a lot of times in Georgia with situations like these is the um, instinct for people to do, you know, something very loud and flashy and to, you know, call on the resignation of Brian Kemp, you know, in this loud authoritative voice. And like, that's going to go nowhere, right? Like nothing's going to ever happen on that front. Whereas, you know, calling for something the state actually has the power to do that is not directly against the political interests of another actor like that is a real tangible thing that would improve the situation that can be done to make people realize that there are consequences to being a party in atrocities like these i think that's very valuable and i i think it's you know it's not as flashy it's not as exciting it's not as headline provoking but it is important and i'm happy to see him pushing for that I was very pleased to see Leader Trammell uh, take this approach. I think it was a responsible approach, and um, it, is, it will be something that's effective for calling for the immediate suspension of the license 
licenses of the providers that are named in the complaint that was filed. Um, I, I'm glad that he has taken a public stance on this. Uh, it's important for us to see our leaders lead. And I, I am forward to this being, uh, you know, enacted in, uh, you know, this complaint going all the way and for these licenses to be actually suspended. Um, and I would love to, on the state level, see more action and, of course, at the federal level as well. Yeah, I think this raises, you know, somewhat unrelated to this specific incident, but it does raise, I think, part of what is at stake if Democrats have, if Democrats are successful in taking the state house in the fall, and that is oversight from the legislature on things that are going on um, in our state, whether by federal officials, um, by you know, this is a this is a privately run facility. Um, but there are certainly state and local, you know, policy levers here, whether it's licensing or or zoning or or whatever the case may be. And when you've had re- unified Republican government in Atlanta, I mean, I can't remember the last time that there was any kind of like oversight hearing um, on any matter of consequence up until the last few months when the legislature said that they would look into problems with voting in, in Fulton County. Um, you know, leader, when we talked to Leader Trammell previously, he said that he thought uh, legislative oversight over the issue related to sterogenics and the uh, pollution in the in the Smyrna and Covington areas, that that would be appropriate. And so, you know, to me, th- part of the stakes of Democrats taking the House here is having some sort of opposition that although they may not have the ability to sort of force laws through if they only control the house, having investigations, putting things forward in the media and putting pressure on Republicans to react to these things, I think is, is a valuable uh, opportunity on the table for Democrats if they're successful in November. And speaking of, of reactions, you know, I didn't really see now granted, you know, this news broke, Late on Monday, on Tuesday, there was a press conference, and so there hasn't been a ton of time for reactions yet, but I have not seen many reactions from Republicans on this issue. The one reaction I did see uh, was a quote in the AJC from Congressman Austin Scott, who represents the area that this detention facility is in. He basically said that he reached out to the Department of Homeland Security to you know, highlight this and DHS told him that they are taking complaints like these seriously. As far as I know, he did not, you know, comment on the specifics of, of the allegations and in how abhorrent these activities are, if they're, if they're true, which was something that Democrats did across the board. But, you know, at minimum, when, when these issues are in the news, Republicans, you know, need to react. And, and I think that, adds to the value of, of potential oversight opportunities. Let's move on here um, to, to just add a, a little bit of a note um, following our, our Labor Day episode from last week before we get into our interview with Erica Williams. And that was this news that broke after we recorded that staffers across coordinated campaigns working on, on Democratic campaigns in the state are attempting to form a union and negotiate a contract with the state Democratic Party. Um, Luke and Nabila, both of y'all have tons of campaign experience. And so I think the main thing that I'm interested in, because we don't have a ton of details on, you know, what's going to be negotiated in the contract, what kinds of issues are up for debate here. Um, But I think both of you have a lot of insight into how challenging the job of being a campaign staffer can be. Um, So I just wanted to get y'all's reactions to this effort to unionize and the kinds of things that you think staffers who want more protections, better working environments, the kinds of things they may try to ask for in a negotiation. So I've been a campaign staffer prior to running for office for, for about eight years. And so I've worked on several campaigns and for different democratic institutions. And, uh, you know, the work, it can be a thankless job at some times. And it, it takes, um, you know, you're working, you're burning that midnight oil for sure. Um, and it's not, you know, anywhere near a regular job where you work 40 hours and you, you know, get your evenings to yourself, let alone your weekends. 
I'm seeing more positive changes though in the in culture in where you know folks given more uh, you know time to themselves. They're being paid better than they were five six years ago. Um, they're getting healthcare benefits. I mean, these are things that we should absolutely have uh, for any job. You know, I don't know what, uh, but I and that are organizing and uh, demanding uh, for better uh, worker workers' rights, uh, you know, across every profession. Yeah, so in 2014, I, I was a field organizer, so I, I was definitely one of the frontline employees of the Democratic Party of Georgia and one of the people who uh, would have been organizing this union. And, you know, I was lucky in the sense that, like, I felt like I was getting a pretty good uh, paycheck based on how much experience I had at the time. And, you know, I had health insurance through my parents. And so that was nice. And uh, it, it felt like enough for me. I didn't I didn't love the fact that I worked every single day, but I was someone who showed up very happy and excited uh, to be working on the project of, you know, electing Democrats statewide um, and uh, locally. That being said, like, I recognize that, like, my experience was one that was, like, very, very privileged and not uh, one that everyone could come to in the same way and approach it the same way. And so I'm really happy to see this both for the like real financial reasons uh, that, you know, just, just because you are a political staffer, there is no George Soros checks. Like that's not real. <laughs> so, you know, we're all just surviving off a uh, pretty low paycheck for especially the amount of hours that you're expected to uh, put in. And on that front, I'm happy. And then on the other front, I, I think this is, a frustration and balance of mine uh, as someone who, you know, like Nabila has been working on campaigns for a really long time. There's this horrible balancing act you have to do on a campaign, especially as you get higher up on them and like have to consider things like the budget. Campaigns don't have a lot of money. Like, I mean, presidential campaigns do and sure, you know, um, Senate campaigns do. But for the coffers that the Democratic Party of Georgia is working through of money that's like explicitly the DPG's money and for, you know, state house candidates and state senate candidates and even county commission candidates, the, the money is really, really low. And so it, it these calls to unionize sometimes uh, are met uh, with consternation. And so I appreciate that, at least from what we can see publicly, the DPG uh, is really sort of putting its values forwards and is not fighting this you know, attempt to unionize and put out a statement saying that they were excited about it. And I just really appreciate that we are trying to, you know, uh, display the values that we think are important in allowing this unionization to happen. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes. Well, I think even just the negotiation and, and whatever deal they come up with could be instructive. I imagine that this could be sort of a multi-year, multi-cycle process of figuring out how you structure campaigns in a way where you have enough staff so that people do not have to work super insane hours all of the time, where you have the funding you need to provide benefits. And and maybe that, you know, maybe to some extent those Benefits don't necessarily come from the individual campaigns themselves, but from some sort of umbrella organization. Who knows if I'm, you know, proposing a violation of campaign finance law? Well, to to help you there, Kyle. Typically, the DPG absorbs a lot of employees of campaigns, uh, not mm -hmm. on the like state house and state senate level, but definitely on the uh, senate level and presidential level. And so, when I was working for the party. I was I got hired technically as like a nun staffer, but I was getting paid through the DPG. Like that's who signed my checks, um, and so like I'm, that that part is definitely true. But that would be an interesting thing to look to in the future of you know if uh, other you know state level campaigns could buy into like the DPG health insurance plan. You know I, I'm working a race right now. We have a campaign manager, and that would be a really great opportunity if we could somehow uh, provide them with health insurance. I think that's a exciting idea that I just had. So <laughs> hopefully that'll be something we can do in the future. And um the you know the the thing the 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 difficult thing is balancing like what it takes to win a campaign and what it takes to like be a human person living a normal life. Um because in the office I worked in like there were two staffers and we had 
uh, completely different turf that we're responsible, completely different geographical areas. So it's like if I wasn't working it, really no one was. Um, and, I, you know, as far as I'm aware right now, that basic model uh, hasn't gone away. But I think, you know, d despite the fact that I was the only person working uh, that turf, like I could have taken a day off and it would have been fine. Uh, so I, I think, you know, there are some very basic requirements uh, or, you know, asks that the organizers could make that would be reasonable. The The real tricky thing, I think, is going to be the fact that there is just so much turnover among organizers. You know, at least in previous years, uh, all these people that get hired end up, you know, being let go at the end of the campaign season. And it'll be interesting to see, like, how and if this unionization survives the fact that basically all the members of the union are going to uh, go away in November, December of this year. Well, and it raises the possibility that, you know, just because elections are over doesn't mean the work is done and, and maybe the sign of a healthy state party, a state party that has the ability to take one or both chambers of the legislature and, and then hang on to them and, and govern when you have them would be to bring in talented people into your organization and find roles for them across all of the different aspects of being a successful Democratic Party in Georgia. And I think if if a unionization effort spurs that conversation and gets people to think creatively about how to build stronger political organizations in our state, I think that's a, a good benefit. Yeah, I, I think it would be a good benefit as well. You know, I've worked at a state party before um, for the Florida State Party. And uh, as far as, you know, talent at a uh, state party level, uh, it, there is toner, turnover. You know, people, it, that's just the nature of the folks are working different job cycle to cycle, um, which is unfortunate because, you build these people up and they you know, add so much value and then you have to replace them. And so it's like you're always kind of playing a little bit of a catch up. Um, but I, I, I would say that, you know, competitive salaries uh, means you'll get better staffers that are more experienced um, that can you know, help build up our party more and, um, you know, help us with, you know, every department, whether it's finance, comms, um, yeah, uh, field. Uh, and I think it's important to have a competitive state party and, and a healthy one uh, so that we can help all the candidates down ballot as well. Yeah, the, the hardest part of this, I think, is the fact that the money just historically has not been there for this project of, you know, trying to bring on uh, more and more staffers for the long term. And the real uh, project that I hope that the Democratic Party of Georgia engages in, and I mean, really the DNC as well, is trying to find roles for organizers in between cycles, because there are a lot of people who really enjoy the work of organizing and, you know, getting to move to a new community or work in their own community uh, every campaign cycle. But the in-between times are very, very difficult for those folks. And um, you know, like the reason, one of the reasons why I only worked as a field organizer one cycle was the fact that there was no uh, way to continue that as a profession until pretty late into the campaign cycle uh, each year. And, and that's just, you know, you can't, can't make a living that way. So that, that would be an interesting and critical project really for the DPG to engage in is, you know, finding other things, even if it's not with the party directly that those folks can do somebody has right. to make policy <laughs> yeah i well i i wanted to add one more thing um so yes um the state party the national party the county party they all rely on donations to you know fuel their operations and and you know campaign, uh you will look at the um you know the annual like how much they bring in annually and it's and especially during an election year, it's sort of like a startup. You raise a bunch of money and then you just burn it at the end. And you're not supposed to have any money at the end because that means you, you used it effectively and you didn't like uh, leave any stone unturned when it came to making sure your messaging uh, and, uh, uh, you know, field organizers were able to make those calls or knocking on doors um, and they were able to execute that. And so it, it, I, it's, it's, I, I love the idea that finding, um, you know, different projects for, staffers at the end of 
of a campaign. Um, you just have to make sure that they get paid, right? Um, and I feel like that people are, and, and also the, these artists get burnt out because they're just hitting up so hard uh, in a couple of months for that to just rejuvenate um, so that you can start asking people again for money. Um, it's, I think it's just a flawed way of, of funding our, 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 our parties and, um, and that's why we have this flawed system. So, but we should find a solution to that. Alrighty. Well, lots more to look forward to on that conversation, uh, but for now we're going to leave it there and I'm going to turn it over to my interview with Erica Williams. She is a democratic candidate for district attorney down in Houston County. All right. Joining the podcast is Erica Williams, a Democratic candidate for district attorney in the Houston Judicial Circuit, which covers Houston County. Uh, Erica, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, So let's start out by letting our listeners meet you. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and what led you to run for district attorney in Houston County? Sure. Well, I am a nearly 20-year resident of Georgia. I moved here from Ohio after I completed law school at the University of Dayton. And the, the funny story is I, I left Ohio for love, but I made sure to pass the bar in Ohio first in case love didn't work out. <laughs> but it did. So I um, ended up moving to Houston County in 2001 and um, started with the Houston County DA's office in 2002. And when I started, I started in the juvenile division, which was um, we, our division, we, we have, we're a small office, but our juvenile division is kept in a separate, um, it's a whole separate building. And so I started there and uh, was in the juvenile division roughly eight years. And then I went to the Superior Court for a while and um, working in the Superior Court office I had to come back several times because we couldn't hang on to our juvenile prosecutor. And as most people that do prosecution know, nobody really wants to do juvenile because it's just not sexy prosecution. There's no juries. It's always usually the same judge and usually the same core little group of defense attorneys. So most of the time when you get somebody in juvenile, they, they want to leave pretty quickly. Um, in, in 2011, uh, I was appointed chief assistant district attorney by uh, district attorney George Hartwig, and I've been the chief assistant since then. Uh, my duties have changed as of late. Um, I am back in the juvenile court now supervising that office and handling the juvenile caseload um, down here. But what inspired me to run is really twofold. One, um, because we have uh, Mr. Hartwig and I are disagreeing on the management of the office, but two, because I feel like this is a great time for us to be able to implement some real meaningful change in how we do things in Houston County. And um, the only way to really do that is to change the leadership at the top. And so that's what finds me running. So we've only recently begun to talk to district attorney candidates. I think for our listeners, this may be a position that's still a little new to them. It's one of those uh, positions that is very local um, and in a position that we're trying to to shine more light on here with the show. Um, So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about what the role of a district attorney is and what, in your view, someone needs to be doing as a district attorney to be successful in that role? Well, sure. It's, it's surprising a little bit that people just don't really know what the, what the DA does because it is such a vital part of our criminal justice system. I mean, it, in, it, especially in Georgia, the DA is, is one of the most powerful offices that you can have um, in the county. The, the, the role of the prosecutor is to represent the state of Georgia and victims of crime when um, an alleged criminal act has occurred. So um, that's pretty, that's pretty the, the most generalist of terms. We have other things that we're required by statute to do. For instance, we, we work, um, we had the, um, each county um, is mandated to have a, a multidisciplinary task force to review child abuse cases. So the DA is on that um, task force. We also head up the child fatality review, which is a committee that is required by statute to review any time a, a child under the age of 18 dies, we, we have to review it. 
we um, convene grand juries and we present evidence to grand juries to establish probable cause uh, when a person has been arrested for a felony offense. We also um, supervise the uh, certain offices in, in the county. So for instance, the grand jury is required by statute to do an inspection of the jail and um, they also uh, do an inspection of the clerk's office. Uh, there's some election uh, documents the grand jury uh, may be responsible for. So it really, there really is a lot that goes into being district attorney. Day to day, our, our, the district attorney's job is really just to make sure that when a person is arrested for an offense, um, that we can prove that they are guilty of that offense beyond a reasonable doubt, and then come up with sentencing recommendations to give to a judge. So what they should be doing uh, is our first job is to seek justice. And that is kind of can be a sore spot for some people because really um, there's an old adage about um, the blind men and the elephant. I don't know if you've heard of that one before, but basically um, the adage is it to a blind person that an elephant looks can look different depending on what part of the elephant that you're touching. And so depending on where you are in the criminal justice system, justice can mean something different. If you've, you know, if you've been in the victim of a crime, justice could mean, you know, that the person who perpetrated the crime um, is punished under the, uh, under the rules of the law. If you're the person that is accused of the crime, then justice means that you're given a fair trial and um, that, you're be, that you'll be treated fairly and that there won't be illegally seized evidence used against you. So um, our first job as prosecutors is to do justice, but because we have such a top heavy criminal justice system, um, I think that around the country and around the state, we are finding ourselves in these huge backlogs where people are kind of, I don't wanna say calling the state's bluff, but realizing, you know, well, the constitution says I'm entitled to be proven guilty of these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, as a result, it takes longer and longer for cases to make it to trial. It's, it's very, it, it's kind of similar to, to, you know, voting. You know, we want everybody to vote, but are we really prepared in Georgia for everybody to exercise their right to vote? So a lot of times we have, um, you know, a lot of people will say, well, you shouldn't be, as a prosecutor, you shouldn't be offering plea deals. No plea deals ever. Well, that's just not realistic. You have to be able to offer some sort of incentive for people to accept responsibility. Otherwise, the system would literally grind to a halt. And COVID has really exposed that as well, because in many uh, counties, the system has, has just kind of ground to a halt because we cannot have jury trials. Um, we cannot have uh, grand jury proceedings right now. Um, some cases, some counties are still having court for minor offenses, but... Um, you you it really um has changed the way we we handle cases so let's lean a little bit into that uh that frame around sort of how the office is administered you know when we've talked um to other district attorney candidates and when we've talked about other criminal legal issues we've often talked about some of these reform-minded prosecutors that have run for office um, with big ideas for changing the way in which criminal law is administered you know primarily with a goal of dealing with sort of racial injustices in in the criminal legal system one of the issues that you've centered your campaign around is being a good administrator of this position. You mentioned the backlog of cases and, and the goal to reduce those. You've talked about being transparent with the community and being accessible to the employees who would work for you. I myself am a big fan of government that's run really well, but candidates don't often talk about uh, sort of good administration of government as a central issue to their campaign. So what made you kind of center some of these issues in your campaign? And do you feel that better administration of this office is something that voters in your community are looking for? Yes. Well, for me, it was a matter of necessity. I, I don't know how much you know about politics in Houston County, but they are, we're a largely red county. We don't have, we rarely have Democrats to run for any office and the few that have run have not been successful. I think the last uh, in, in um, I'm trying to think the last countywide, the last countywide Democrats 
um, all switched parties probably about 10 years ago. So because the county that that I live in and work in is, is so red, if you will, um, I, I have to be responsive to what I think the voters will be interested in. Yes, they, they, there are a large number of people that are interested in these reforms, but I also felt like I needed to explain that the way that the office itself was running was not an example of good governance. It just wasn't um, the best use of, the, of, of, our, of our tax dollars. Like for instance, um, accountability is, is, a, is, is a phrase that comes up a lot when you're dealing with government funds. And our particular jurisdiction doesn't even currently have a website outside of the, the I don't call it a landing strip or the one page that the county has. Um, I feel like district attorney's office should have websites where people can find out information because sometimes, especially in today's society, people don't want to talk on the phone. I, I, I'm not a big fan of talking on the phone. If I can find it out by getting on, you know, a social media page or going on a website, that is my preference. So I don't really understand why we don't have a website. We used to have a website where you could look at the status of cases and we just, we don't do that anymore. And another thing that is kind of a hot button issue for people is, is you know, forfeiture funds. You know, the Georgia law allows uh, prosecution agencies to get forfeited funds um, when people have committed or we allege that people have committed certain, certain offenses. Those can bring lots of funds into the county, which is great. But I, you know, I feel like you should be very open about what it is you're spending money on. And it, and it may not be a situation where the taxpayers may agree with everything that you spend the money on, but it should be easily accessible for them to see, you know, what it is. And, and sometimes these accounts can have, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars in them. And um, no, do, do we need to know every time you buy an extra pen because your, your county budget doesn't justify it? No, but if you're, you know, if you're buying things like cars or trips or, you know, training, it should be easy. It should be easily accessible for people to find out that information. You shouldn't have to. I'll give you an example. Um, even though I work in the office, I, um, in preparation for my candidacy, I sent out an open records request for um, some information on how the forfeiture funds are spent in the office. And the response that I received was that it was going to take 45 to 60 days to respond, that it would take roughly 35 hours to complete and um, the work would not begin unless, because it was going to cost more than $500, that the work would not begin on the open records request until um, the $500 was paid. But if you look at other counties, Bibb County, for example, um, they have on their website a link where you can click and see at least generally what they're spending their forfeiture funds on. And then if you have a specific question, because they have that general list on there, you can say, I see on June 5th that you spent $30,000 on a car. Can you tell me about that? So I think that just adds to you know, the issues as far as accountability goes. Let's pause on that issue of uh, forfeiture funds here for a moment. Um, I'm not aware of particular cases in Houston County, but I've seen advocates raise concerns about how forfeiture funds are seized from people who are accused of crimes. And in some instances, when people have not been convicted of the crimes they've been accused of, they have um, had difficulty recovering the funds that were taken from them. Um, either they police departments have re have refused to return them or people have had to go to court and take on significant legal expense on their own to to recover what may have been just something like a thousand dollars cash that they that they had on them. Um, do mm -hmm. you have concerns about the policies that govern forfeiture funds, when they can be taken from people and, and when they must be returned to people if those people are ultimately not convicted of the crime that's accused? And if you have concerns, is there anything in your role as DA that would allow you to change those policies or is changing those policies mostly the uh, the province of the legislature? Yeah, I really think that is the province of the legislature to decide. Um, I will say with, with forfeiture, uh, it, there, there, 
the burden of proof to establish um, whether or not uh, the crime can result in forfeiture is not as high as uh, the the criminal conviction. And of course, that could be changed if the legislature if the legislature wanted to, they they could change that. The problem is there are some people out there that just hate the concept of forfeiture altogether. They don't like the idea of the government coming and taking something that belongs to someone else, even if that's even if it was as a result of breaking the law. So because there are people that feel that way, it can make it a little difficult for, um, I guess, how am I trying to say this? There's some that they like forfeiture so much that no matter how the government does it or what they spend the funds on, they're gonna have a problem with it because they don't think that it is a good thing for the government to be doing. On the flip side, you have agencies that it can appear overuse it and then when they're spending the funds they're spending them on things that you know they they often call it the da slush fund or the sheriff slush fund they spend it on things that they may not normally be able to spend spend their budgetary items on i'm more of in in the middle i don't have a problem with people um with the government seizing uh property that is the result of criminal activity because a lot of times those funds can help supplement county government to do other great things. Like for instance, there's some been some cold cases in my office and my bosses use forfeiture funds in order to solve cold cases. So, you know, where our budget may say, well, you can only send, you know, these items to the crime lab, but if we have extra money that we could send to another lab that has the ability to test more items because our state crime lab is so strapped, um, then that's that's a good use. But but there should just be, you know, there should be someone watching just to make sure that the spending is 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 all in line. But I think that those changes are definitely gonna gonna have to come from the legislature. But what happens is like when when certain agencies um, I don't want to say get greedy, but when they start, you know, taking stuff from little old ladies and and they make seem like piddly amounts, then people kind of get turned off on that. Nobody wants to see the the big, you know, dr I use drug dealers for example. Nobody wants to see the big drug dealers um, using their money, but we don't generally speaking that the public does not want to see the weight of the government on some 85 year old grandmother whose you know son is selling whose grandson is selling weed and now you know we're trying to take her house as a result they don't want to see that so um i think as as more spotlights shine on the forfeiture process and the use of forfeiture funds i think you will see some changes in the legislature i mean we had some changes in i think 2015 um, the new changes that we do have require much more detailed reporting than than it did prior to 2015, and it and it spells out better what you can and can't use those funds for. So, 2020 has been a year where we, as a nation, have had a reckoning with racial and social injustices in this country. Earlier this summer, cities across Georgia and across the country saw demonstrations against police brutality. And since then, major cultural institutions like professional sports organizations have continued to highlight calls for racial justice. How does that conversation and the energy from activists that was seen over the summer, how does all of that flow down to you regarding the way criminal laws are administered in Houston County? Are there policies or procedures that are applied in racist ways in your community that you'd like to see changed? I can't think of it off the top of my head. I'm sure somebody listening to this podcast is like, what? <laughs> how could that be? The, the problem is that um, racism is so interwoven into almost everything that we do. It's hard to just, you know, I can't blanketly say no, that there are not racist policies because there probably are some that are steeped in, in historical racism. 
I think what we can do instead, though, is to find ways to work towards that. I, for example, work towards fixing that. For example, I participated in some implicit bias training, and I, you know, I, I would recommend that um, my employees do the same because a lot of people, when you say implicit bias, they don't want to hear it because in their minds, they're thinking, well, I'm not racist, so I don't need this training. But really, Im implicit bias is not just about race. It could be about um, gender. It could be about sexual orientation. It just, it, it, it helps for people to understand where their biases come from, whether they're aware of them or they're not aware of them, because it definitely impacts how you may work out a case. It, it, it may work out it, it may impact the way you, your unknown biases could impact the way you make a plea offer or refuse to make a plea offer, or even whether you dismiss a case or you don't dismiss a case. Um, so it, to, to answer the question that you asked, it's very, it's very hard to pinpoint um, any actual racist policies, but, but, but they, do, they, they, do, they do exist. So maybe in the spirit of, of what you're talking about, about making improvements here, are there things like alternatives to prosecution or alternatives to having police be first responders? For instance, you know, a lot of the discussion that came out of activist movements this summer has been the idea that in some instances, like when a person is under mental duress, experiencing a mental health crisis, that somebody who is not necessarily armed and somebody who has the training to help people who are enduring a mental health crisis. Do you think that there are sort of policies like those that, that maybe fit this framework of addressing uh, implicit biases or, or racial injustice in, in the criminal legal system that are, that are things you would like to see done in your community? Certainly. I, um, I am a big proponent of using alternate alternatives to traditional prosecution when you when you can, um, because that goes back to helping us to reduce the, the case backlog. It, it gives people an opportunity to, if, if done correctly, it gives people an opportunity to make an atonement and um, hopefully not reoffend. The um, as a juvenile prosecutor, I uh, learned, I actually had, I don't know that they still provide the certification, but um, I was one of the few prosecutors to receive national certification in juvenile prosecution. And a part of that, uh, we had to take a course on um, balance. We took courses on balance, balance and restorative justice, or we used to call it BARJ back then. But um, basically the, the, the tech of, of the balance and restorative justice movement is finding a way to make for the offender to make an atonement to the victim um, without there necessarily having to be a criminal um, punishment. So what we have to look at with our criminal justice system is as it stands, because people are entitled to a trial when they're arrested and charged with offense, we, ha we have a very inefficient system. So prosecutors are in the best place to look at some of these cases and try to figure out which ones are appropriate for pretrial diversion, but not just um, blanketly making pretrial diversion offers, but really making pretrial diversion offers that address the issue. So for instance, in one of my caseloads as a felony prosecutor, was to deal with people that have been charged with felony driving with suspended with license suspended. Now, um, under Georgia law, if you've had three or more convictions for driving with a suspended license in five years, then they're then after that they're all felonies. And um, I remember doing my first one after the law had changed. And it just, it, it just didn't sit, sit well with me. The, the man just, um, I mean, he knew his license was no good and he shouldn't have been driving, but I just thought, wow, this man's about to lose his ability to, to um, he's about to lose his ability to, 
to vote while he's on on this sentence and he's not going to be able to own a firearm just because he couldn't get it together about his driver's license. It just kind of just kind of blew me away uh, because people can lose their driver's license for many reasons. Not everybody that has a suspended license is suspended because they were out drinking and driving. So um, back then I didn't have as much authority as I had now. So as so. Um, what I had started doing with many of the people that were charged with these with these offenses felony grade was trying to put them, give them an opportunity to get from under by placing them under a pretrial diversion order that uh, required them to get their driver's license. And of course that did not work for, for everybody, but if you know anything about losing your driver's license, um, if you lose your driver's license, it can cost upward to $1,000 to get it back. And if you get caught driving while your license is suspended, even before it's a felony, um, it's a separate misdemeanor offense and your license is suspended an additional period. So it gets to be quite cyclical. And I can understand in theory why we don't want people that don't have driver's licenses driving. But I also understand, especially in a community like mine, Houston County, we don't have well, we didn't have a bus system. Right now we have a very um, limited system that's not really a bus system in a traditional sense. So, you know, you would have these cases where um, defendants were getting caught driving to work. So um, that's one of the things I'd like to look at is making sure that if if you've got a, you know, a defendant that has an offense like this, and and, and we've done this for, for, um, for people who may have immigration consequences as well, because that felony, you know, in Georgia, you can't get a driver's license uh, if you're if you're not here on a legal status. And um, getting that felony conviction could lead to removal. So, so trying to give people an opportunity to make amends without necessarily resulting in a criminal conviction or resulting in jail time will really help reduce the backlog because those people are entitled to a trial if they really want one. And in our particular jurisdiction, we only have three judges. So as the DA, you would have to prioritize, you would wanna prioritize you know, the murders, the rapes, armed robberies, child molestations. And so you can either just dismiss those, those um, less serious, if you will, cases, or you can try to find some way to help. And so that's what I, I would like to do. So Erica, we've uh, dove into a lot of tough issues in our discussion today, but before we go, is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about your race, about the issues that um, you're going to approach uh, in the DA's office in your county? Um, anything else you'd like listeners to know? Well, I'd really like listeners to know, again, that the DA's race is very important. And no matter what county that you are living in, you really need to research who your district attorney is, because a lot of district attorneys for years have run on this law and order, tough on crime, which is good on paper but is not seeming to be good in practice. Our, our recidivism rates are very high. So doing things the way we've been doing them is not working. So be receptive when you have, especially when you have reform-minded candidates that are telling you, I've been a prosecutor, I understand how things work, I've held victims' hands, and I'm telling you the way we're doing things isn't working. So be receptive to those candidates and really listen to what it is that they have to say. For me, I, I jokingly call myself a blue dot running in a red area. Uh, we haven't had a, uh, and I'm a, I'm a black woman and we haven't had a black woman elected to a countywide office, um, I don't think ever in Houston County. We certainly have never had a black district attorney or a woman district attorney. So my race is, is historical. But beyond that, this is just the time for a reckoning, for a hard look at what we're doing and making sure that not only we're making good use of our tax dollars, but we're really trying to 
create systems that will help keep people out of the criminal justice system instead of keep feeding them into it. All right. Well, Erica Williams is a candidate for district attorney in Houston County. She's on your ballot in Houston County on general election day in November. Erica, if people would like to learn more about your campaign, how could they do that? They can find me on my website, which is www.erica4da.com. And Erica is spelled E-R-I-K-K-A-F-O-R-D-A.com. We are also on social media. Uh, Facebook is Erica4da. Instagram and Twitter are also Erica4da. All right. And I can recommend your Facebook page. There's there's a lot of issues that DAs uh, address and, and some of which we couldn't get to today. But you've got a conversation on there that uh, that I think is about an hour long. I think you also took some questions from from viewers of a, of a Zoom stream on your Facebook page. So if you're somebody who's interested in these issues and, and learning more about where candidates stand, particularly where Erica stands on these issues, um, would definitely encourage listeners to check out her Facebook page. Um, Erica, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you to Erica Williams for joining the podcast today. And Luke and Nabila, thanks to you both for, for joining as well. No problem. Happy to be here. Happy to be here as well. All righty, y'all. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.